Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. You'll have ad-free episodes and join us on our monthly Zoom calls with other podcast listeners and get to know the community at wearelatech.love, linked in the show notes. One of the things I love about We Are LA Tech and LA in general, is that there really is this sense of community. It feels very inclusive. And, you know, how can we learn from one another to grow as a larger tech community? Imagine living your normal day and getting your car fueled up on demand. Seriously, check out LA Startup Refill Fuel and enter code WEARLATECH for $10 off. That's Refill Fuel. It's amazing. Literally, you can be anywhere and have your gas totally topped off the tank and not even have to deal with it. No more gas stations. So go to RefillFuel.com. That's R-E-F-I-L-L-F-U-E-L.com. Code WeRLA Tech for $10 off. We could not do this without the community believing in our vision together. We Are LA Tech is independently funded, funded by you, the community. So to support We Are LA Tech, go to patreon.com slash we are LA Tech. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash we are LA Tech. Hey, everyone. My name is Brian Nickerson. I'm guest hosting We Are LA Tech, the community of entrepreneurs uh, specifically focused on L.A., um, I'm guest hosting for Esprit Devora, um, and today we're here with Shana Alkvist, Principal Consultant for PhD Insights. Shana, how are you? Hi, Brian. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So Shana, um, tell us a little bit about uh, PhD Insights. Tell us about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So 42% of startups fail because there's actually no market need. So I find that to be very disturbing. Um, so what I do at PhD Insights as a user researcher is help companies get to product market fit faster so that their users have a product that they absolutely love. Amazing. Yeah, that's a, a huge need. Um, uh, getting to product market. So it's normally like pretty early stage startups. Like what, what size a company is sort of using your services? Yeah, it really depends on where the client is in the process. So um, in terms of startups, I typically work with them maybe when they're a little bit earlier in the process or when they realize that maybe something's not going quite right. Yeah. Um, so you might have users that are coming in and using your product a couple times, um, but you're not really seeing that retention. And can you also, it could be a much larger company that has sort of a, a new user-focused initiative where they need help. Yeah, absolutely. So um, sometimes larger companies come to me because they're offering some sort of new product that's going to market mm -hmm. and they want to understand either the intricacies of who those customers are or they want to understand some sort of gap in that new initiative. So is there a problem maybe on the product side or on the sales side with that new initiative? Right. So getting product market fit and having customers like basically for, for a company to have customers actually using and finding a lot of value out of their product is basically live or die. Um, and so how do you, how do you think about, right, finding, finding that for, for a startup? Like how do you help them um, understand the challenges that they have um, or figure out what they ought to be doing? Yeah, well, it's important to underscore. Um, people typically come to me when they say something like, you know, we think we have product market foot. We think it's pretty good, um, you know, but it's not great. And we might see that in our, you know, they come and use us a couple times, but then they really drop off. And so early on, that typically looks like 
seeing what they already have in place. So mm-hmm. do they have initial user research? Um, do they have uh, metrics that they've been tracking over time? Do they understand their retention rates? And then going from there. So typically what I do in that process is understand what are the knowledge gaps that they have? Um, where are where does the team ag- agree and where do they disagree mm-hmm. about who they're serving and even what problem they're solving? Mm-hmm. And then depending on where those knowledge gaps are, we decide the best course of action in terms of the research. Gotcha. And so are you getting customer feedback from users as well as doing technical analysis or kind of walk us through what, what that might look like with as, you know, kind of specific an example as you can share. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one example is a client that I worked with recently is a high end meal delivery company. And um, you know, they've been doing really well. Their, their product is about $50 a day. So the customers that they've been serving, you know, that's a pretty hefty price yeah. to be paying on for a daily three, basis. Three meals a day. For three meals a day Amazing. plus snacks. Yeah. So, I mean, you can do the math and that, that, um, that money that's coming in is pretty good, but they really didn't understand why their customers were there. So in that case, um, is it, so in in this case, it was a healthy food delivery company. So many of their customers use their product to lose weight, but the question is, well, are they here to lose weight or are they here for the convenience? And if Mm. it's a blend of those two, to what extent is it a blend? Is it mostly one and not the other? And by using that information, they can understand, um, one, how to market a little bit better. So which do you emphasize in your marketing messaging? Uh, but then you can also use that to understand how to retain your customers. Mm-hmm. So what are the things you need to improve on? Is it you know making the calorie count a little bit better or mm-hmm. is it on making the delivery process a little bit less painful? Gotcha. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And and I think you you might help companies like segment, right? So there might be there might be some customers that are to lose weight and other customers for the convenience and the company better understanding what that is. They can actually segment their messaging as well. Absolutely. So one of the complaints I hear a lot from um, product managers or one of the concerns that they have is that there are just so many goals and mm. understanding how to prioritize those goals can be really difficult. So by understanding, as you mentioned, the different segments that their customers fall into, you're able to inform a strategy of which customers are we focusing on first in our Mm -hmm. first feature sets, or if we're focusing on multiple um, different segments of customers, how are we doing that? Right. And so are you looking at value of customer too, um, as you're doing that, right? So maybe maybe the convenience segment actually has more money to spend and is a more valuable customer than the health benefit customer. Right. Um, or vice versa. Right. So that's not a focus of what I do right now. Gotcha. It's mostly understanding why customers are there and then using that information additionally. Yeah. So in the case of the food delivery client, we did also look at who was spending the most and for how long. Um, but that wasn't the primary goal of the study. Gotcha. Um, and so you, you, uh, PhD insights, you have a PhD yourself. I do. So I actually have a doctorate in quantitative social psychology. I feel like uh, social psychology is increasingly all the rage in the tech world. And <laughs> so is it's, uh, I call it it's distant cousin behavioral economics. So yes. <laughs> uh, I know a behavioral economist actually just won the, uh, the Nobel prize in economics. So yeah. We're happy that those findings are becoming more widely recognized. Right. Absolutely. And so what, what does a PhD in Cognitive sociology? A quantitative social psychology. (laughs) Quantitative social psychology. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your studies. Like what, what, did you do a thesis for it? Like how do we, I'm I'm curious about this because these are, these are the type of insights I think that come, um, a lot of times they get overlooked for startups um, where you've got someone who's like brilliant at technology. They have a hunch about what they ought to build. um, They build something, they get a little bit of traction, but then it's like, like this it fits to the core of why businesses need this. So I'm kind of curious about your path getting there and 
kind of your studies along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're totally right. People get that you need to be doing some testing, um, but a lot of times they do it in a much less rigorous way than you would in actual science. Um, so a lot of A-B testing softwares exist and they're very popular. But when you're doing a formal study, you want to be really, really rigorous. Um, so just to give you an example from psychology literature, um, you might have heard that how you physically stand affects your mood. Mm -hmm. So you might imagine that if you you put a big smile on your face, that that might make you more happy. Or if you slouch down, that that would make you less happy. Well, as a psychologist, I wouldn't do a study where I just say like, hey, Brian, I want you to smile. Do you feel happier? Because <laughs> I'm smiling right now. I do feel happier, but go, go ahead. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So, um, so while that might seem like to a layperson to be a fine experiment, you're introducing too many different factors. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is you want to be as... Um, as rigorous as possible in isolating the thing you think is causing change. Mm -hmm. So in that case, um, what they've actually done is rather than smiling or frowning, they'll ask you to stick a pencil between your teeth. Mm. So you can imagine, you can't see this in podcast world, but if you imagine sticking a finger or um, a pencil between your teeth, you know, your, your lips would Sideways, have to kind of, right? Not yeah. down your throat. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. <laughs> your, your lips would have to retract. And by doing that, you're actually making this, you're using the same muscles that you would be if you're smiling. So um, in this study where they look at how um, your muscle motion affects your mood, mm. they might ask you to hold a pencil in your mouth with, by your lips, which mimics the muscles of a frown, um, versus by your teeth, which mimics the muscles of a smile. Mm -hmm. So now you as a participant in that study wouldn't really know what we were measuring. You wouldn't think you were smiling or you wouldn't think you were frowning. Um, but that's but by isolating those muscles, we're able to look at um, do those muscles affect your mood beyond your expectations. And right. um, so this is all to say, be a little bit more rigorous when you're doing your tests um, set a priori hypotheses and really coach them in specific metrics that you want to evaluate. Gosh, that's that's brilliant because you have I, I mean, that that totally makes sense. And and you're removing biases right from that analysis um, and, and bringing sort of true rigorous scientific analysis and structure to the, the insights you're, you're deriving. Absolutely. No. And in fact, I am. Um these cognitive biases are incredibly pervasive in all people, including mm -hmm. scientists. Um, but I just wrote an article on um, my blog about cognitive biases that affect product managers. Mm. And what's really interesting that it's it's the most metrics driven um, product managers, the ones who are most in touch with their users, who might be at the greatest risk right. of these cognitive biases. Interesting. And what's your blog? Uh, so it's at phd-insights.com. Amazing. Um, and so that, I mean, that sounds like a great resource for a lot of companies. Cause I think like, I mean, I, I just think of all the times I've struggled as an entrepreneur with trying to find out what are the users doing and, and you have this mix too. Um, and I guess I'm curious about this piece because, um, you know, in a startup environment, you want to move quickly and you sort of do need to move quickly and you need to listen to the market to move. Um, so sometimes the, 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 like, as a startup, you can't spend six months on a really rigorous, right, scientific study that might be perfect from a science perspective, but the, the market has actually moved past you within that. So how do you, how do you bring that balance of kind of rigor and speed um, to probably some very complicated questions you're looking into for your clients? <laughs> oh, God, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> so, I mean, no, really, but, but coming from academia, like scientists are willing to spend, I mean, not kidding, three years on a single question. Sure. That's completely infeasible when you're trying to get to product market fit. Um, so one of the things I always try to do is understand the um, 
the day-to-day realities of the company I'm working with. And from that, like, do you want to be extremely rigorous at a two-year cost? Or no, you're pitching in three months and you just need to make sure you have the metrics available to make that pitch compelling. Right. Very interesting. And what do, what do you hear back? I mean, do, do your clients skew in one way or another? Is there any way to generalize that or is it each, each is individual? Um, I found that it's been pretty individual. Um, I think if you, if, if a client wants, yeah, I think it's sort of like data as religion. Yeah. The people who find value in the scientific rigor kind of worship at the altar of, of data and (laughs) being scientifically driven. Right. Um, versus I think most, I guess most people are more interested in getting to the outcome as quickly as possible. So long as you're not making too many leaps. Sure. What, what advice would you give right for, um, for entrepreneurs who want to understand about users? Maybe they're not necessarily ready for your services yet. Um, but they do know they need to add more science. They need to be more rigorous about creating, a better user experience or learning from what their users are doing so they can evolve. Um, do you have any tips uh, for the entrepreneurial community um, from what you've seen with some of your clients that they can put to work right away? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could recommend a couple of resources that oh, people great. could check out. So um, one of the ones that's really making the rounds these days is Neri Yall's book, um, Hooked. So okay. in the book, he talks about the process of um, human psychology and creating habits around products and disrupting the habits that already exist Mm. for potential users. And so, you know, entrepreneurs vastly overvalue the, the new benefits of their products (laughs) in comparison to what a potential user would want. So a potential user might irrationally overvalue what's familiar while an entrepreneur might irrationally overvalue what's novel. And so just to give you an example, do you use Amazon prime? I do. I'm okay. a customer. Okay, yeah. great. So you spend, what is it now? $85 a year on that subscription. But what if I told you that Walmart now offers two-day shipping for free and there's no annual fee? Yeah. Are you going to switch? I'm not. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from Walmart's perspective, they're actually offering a better product. Right. But, and I haven't asked you specifically, but I am a prime user. Those habits are so ingrained yeah. that even though that Walmart's offering a superior service, I might not be willing to switch. Right. Um, so- to the extent that entrepreneurs can understand what are the habits that their users already have in place Mm. and how can they interrupt that habit cycle and insert themselves. Interesting. So that's fascinating because I spend a lot of time in retail um, Mm. and think about these things a lot. Um, So like what, what should Walmart be doing? Because they have been being very aggressive almost on a feature set and product services piece. But to me, there's, there's a missing psychology that they're kind of late to the game to. Um, so I wonder, do you, do you have any, any thoughts, um, of what they could be doing? Um, Gosh. cause yeah. I think, cause I think honestly, I don't think my answer is unique. I think, I think most people would think that way and maybe that'll play out. Maybe change will play out over time. Um, but, but still ordering from Amazon, just, it feels routine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it needs to be like 10 times better to switch. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, they say that a product has to be nine times better for users to switch. So you're not off, you're not <laughs> off at all with that hyperbolic statement. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. And I mean, the Walmart example is a little bit tricky because there are so many other um, cultural issues that surround it. You yeah. know, a lot of millennials in particular have um, unpleasant feelings towards Walmart sure. for some of its um, policies historically. Um, so, yeah, in the case of Walmart, you might want to understand what are those um, hesitations that users might have to perhaps in their case, explicit hesitation. So sure. I might say like, no, I won't use Walmart because I'm unhappy with 
X, Y, and Z. Um, or you might, you might find that, um, that habit is just so ingrained to go to Amazon that yeah. you're really going to have to create some new appealing habit to disrupt that in the first place. Yeah. So if you were diving, it sounds like I'm kind of taking from earlier points of our conversation, but if you were diving, if Walmart asked you to dive into that, you'd almost want to study. And I guess this is a question. Would you, would you want to study, um, the users who have switched and understand what the heck caused them to switch and then segment that and use that as part of your marketing message is maybe not well, it's two-day shipping and it's free, but there might actually be some other reason why they have switched. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I agree that that would be a really valuable piece of information. So um, I, I would almost wonder if those are people who didn't join Amazon Prime mm. because of the cost. Sure. Um, but sure, they want two-day shipping if they can have it for free. Yeah. Um, so that might, in that case, that would reveal important information about who you can onboard. Right. Um, absolutely. So, right. So in that example, just kind of drawing that out a little bit more, you, if that was the case, we don't know, of right. Course. But, but hypothetically, if that was the case, then Walmart might in the near term want to spend more of their time, basically find everyone who hasn't signed up to Amazon prime. And that's for whom this is a, this is that nine X better proposition, um, because free actually matters more than subscription. Um, and maybe that's their starting point in terms of how they start to generate that that product market fit. Exactly. And in the meantime, they now have bought themselves some time where they are acquiring users that they can understand. Um, during that time, they can understand what about these other people who yeah. are Amazon Prime customers? How do we recruit them? Yeah. So, so Shana, Walmart should hire you. <laughs> we just we just figured out some uh, some great issues it's to help, help Walmart uh, scale. Um, PhD Insights, Walmart, if you're listening, um, make sure to find Shana because she will help you in your battle with Amazon. Um, so um, where in LA are you based? Tell, tell us, let's move into kind of the LA piece. Uh, like where's the, where's the company based? Um, do you serve clients not only in LA, globally? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I'm actually working out of Cross Campus here in Santa Monica. Love it. Um, and so I work with a team of consultants and we scale up or down as our clients needs change. Are, are you from LA originally or what, what brought you here? Or No. So I grew up on the East coast and I lived in uh, New York city for six years before the weather finally brought me out here. <laughs> I don't know. I growing up in Florida and I think you said you, you lived in the Northeast for a bit, but those, yeah. those winters are a little bit brutal in the 72 and sunny all year. Ain't they're, too bad. They're different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you grew up in Florida. Yeah. So I grew up in Tampa Bay. Um, okay. So, so kind of East coast, you had Florida, you had New York and then, and then to LA. So what originally brought you out here to LA? It literally was the weather. So I, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I went on a road trip, um, all down the West coast when I lived in New York and I got to Santa Monica in August and it was 72 and sunny, a gentle breeze standing on the Palisades, looking at the beach, <laughs> watching people run, having just come from the farmer's market. And I thought like, oh yes, I've got to find a way to get here. Um, so once I, my husband and I, my now husband and I completed our graduate work, we were looking for the first opportunity to move out here. Great. Um, yeah, the weather, <laughs> so many people talk about, talk about the weather as a, as a wonderful, um, one of the pieces. Um, what other pieces of the, of the LA kind of startup ecosystem um, have you found interesting, unique, helpful kind of are keeping you here? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I love about We Are LA Tech and LA in general is that there really is this sense of community. It does not, for me at least, feel really cutthroat. It feels very inclusive. And, mm -hmm. you know, how can we learn from one another to grow as a larger tech community? And so any any particular, obviously Esprit has been a, a big um, piece of, of forming that community and maybe forming that vibe. 
Um, are there other resources you've had sort of in the LA tech community where you connect with potential clients, um, you know, get support for, for your company? Like what's, what's been kind of inspirational for you? Yeah. I mean, the one that comes to mind most immediately is, um, Aurora Managello runs a, a new company called um, Repurpose Your Purpose, and where she teaches people to use the skills they already have to do something new. Um, uh. She was formerly a marketer, and she gave me some of the best marketing advice I've received in my entire career. So as a former, as a reformed academic, I'm a big data person. I love data. But it turns out data is not what sells most people. It's actually emotion. Yeah. Um, so some of the guidance she's given me has been absolutely instrumental in understanding how to get to product market fit for my own company. Sure. So so share share a little bit about that. Like how do, how do you so basically selling consulting services based on emotion rather than uh, rather than data will save you this amount of money or help you accelerate product market fit by two months. There's actually an emotional piece, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. And it's fascinating to me. So she instructed me to, you know, go out there and talk to potential customers of user researchers and understand their problems. And over the course of a few interviews, first of all, I met some incredible talent here in L.A. Um, but you do see these emergent themes like, oh, we just have so many product goals. I don't have a sense of how to prioritize them or I can't just go get some data about my users because I have a completely new kind of user. Mm. I can't just ask them a question or get a survey. Um, I need to do something much more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And so do you, um, as you're recruiting clients, do you sort of, have you played with that emotional appeal um, and any, any insights there? Cause I, I sort of think of that as, um, uh, you know, things I've done as an entrepreneur is like, I, I have a idea of how I should, explain a product to a potential customer and then basically like try 10 different versions in 10 different conversations. And then from that, maybe that goes to, okay, these two kind of worked well. So I'm going to now use these two in little variations. And that, that like process of basically like having, sometimes you like pitch your service and someone just stares at you blankly. And then other times you're, you're talking about what you do and they're like, oh my gosh, I need that. Right. And you, you, use that to sort of triangulate. Is that something you've done yes, uh, yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about A-B testing in real life on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not scientific rigor, well, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, we all, we all got to start somewhere. Yeah. No, but exactly. Um, so what I found has been the most effective, and again, this is something I've had to learn the hard way, is starting with um, the thing that's going to excite people emotionally. So yeah. um, something like, do you want to waste $30,000 on developing a product that no one's ever going to use? <laughs> like, like, oh gosh, yeah, that yeah, sounds horrible. Yes, no, yes, said no one ever. Yeah. And then, you know, they <clears> say, <throat> no, of course not. And then you say, I help people avoid that crisis. And now you're hooked and you say, yeah. well, how? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Right. And in, in my case, it's talking to those users from the get go and using that to inform development. But I found that starting with that emotional hook. So if I tell you, like, I'm going to help you save money. That's great. That's what I want. And I might tell you nothing about how. And I find that to be ridiculous, but it's it's absolutely true that that hooks people. Yeah, that's uh, that's brilliant. I love that. Um, so how how do you scale? I mean, do you have um, is it like do you envision sort of like one big like after this interview, Walmart hires you or um, do you have like tons of clients like how your company, your services? How, how do you think about scaling? Yeah, absolutely. So um as of now, what I'd love to do is expand my consultancy to a larger team mm -hmm. so we could specialize um, in things like behavioral economics and really habit change, um, specializing in different kinds of research methodology. 
And then, of course, building out the design component that goes with that. So once you understand that these parts of your e-commerce checkout experience have friction in X, Y, and Z places, let's now use that information and turn it into a um, frictionless design that can help generate additional revenue. Amazing. So can we spend a little bit of time on, on habit changing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think, so, um, it's so interesting, right? Because from a really high level, it seems to me that companies that are able to figure out a way to change habits in their customers become these massive, hugely successful platforms. And yet most startups try to do that. And customers are like, that's annoying. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. And like, almost that's the failure point. Right. So I, I almost think of um, you know, um, Facebook, no one, no one was like sharing public information before. Um, and then all of a sudden they, they've come out with a way where people felt comfortable with that and they changed their habits. And now people, right. In terms of where they consume their news, in terms of where they socialize, what they do digitally, like all of that. Right. So we could talk about the really big companies. I don't know if that's the right place to go with this, but this notion of habit changing, cause I've also had experiences as an entrepreneur where I'm like, all you need to do is this, mm. like, you just need to do that thing. And if you don't get, if you're not actually providing a service that people want to change their habits or do like that's a that's that's a point of failure that's pretty much why companies live and die absolutely no and i mean <clears throat> you mentioned that some people try to do it and fail um i see one of the things that people do i would say incorrectly is a lot of notifications right so you're you're pinging your customer you're let's say you have a mobile app yeah um you're pinging them with a lot of notifications to come back in well, if I contextually want that information, that's really valuable. Um, but if I'm a user who downloaded the app and haven't ever used it, that suddenly becomes spam, sort of uninteresting, right? And in fact, it can become um, frustrating. So what, cust- what um, companies should do instead is look at what possible cues might exist in the environment mm. that their customers are already being exposed to and then try to hook onto one of them. So to give you an example, because that sounds very broad. Yeah. Um, so this isn't this is a, a friend of mine who owns um, tr- Tampon Tribe. So they are like Dollar Shave Club, but for feminine hygiene products. Amazing. Right. And so one of the um, ideas I had for them and we haven't had a chance to discuss it yet, but is this idea of. So what is the habit that a woman would have or a cue a woman would have in the environment? that would trigger her to want to go join Tampon Tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, in their case, the woman might go under the sink, you know, to get her feminine hygiene products and find that the box is empty and go like, oh, that's so frustrating. Right. So if, if a tam- burning problem, a probably. burning problem. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> if, if um, Tampon Tribe was able to cue their potential customers with that image of like, when you see this frustrating empty box, mm. you now you have to go to the store. It's such a hassle. But if you could cue them like, oh man, when, next time I see this, I should just join Tampon Tribe. I don't have to go to the store. Everything's fine. Um, so you're now hooking your product onto a cue that's already existing in their environment to create yeah. that trigger. And, you know, once that messaging is laid out, you don't have to do anything because they're going to encounter that cue all on their own. Right. Wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's fascinating. So, um, and that's, that's, so you're trying to change behavior with, with basically a cue that's already happening naturally and tying those two together. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and so this is, Neri all talks about this more in Hooked, but once you're able to bring customers in through a queue in their environment, you're able to, um, there are several other steps in his model, but you're able to sort of keep them there. Gotcha. And so where do you think most companies fail in that? 
Gosh, that's a really hard question. I would say at the startup level, it's probably understanding what the problem that they're solving really is Mm. and whether their solution is actually the right solution. Um, I think for larger companies or even farther, even startups that are a little bit farther along in the process, I think there's still this this focus on the bottom of the funnel. So we have people coming in, let's optimize these little things here and there. And that might nudge the needle a little bit, but if you can really understand, like I said, why your users are actually there yeah, and then shift that side of the funnel a little bit, you can really keep people in there in a much more engaged way. Right. Yeah. That's, and be, um, that's sort of on a net promoter score. That'd be like your tens, right? Yeah. Find out what makes them tens do it and make sure you're doing it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Shana, um, one of the things that we love to ask guests on the show is uh, if you have an ask uh, of the community, um, how can the community help you? What would your most burning ask be um, of the other folks who are listening to the show? Of course. Well, at my core, I love teaching. So when I was in New York at NYU, I taught college courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what I'd love to do is help startup entrepreneurs understand how they can implement user research in a better way. So what I'm doing now is launching a series on my website, which is PhD hyphen insights, um, where I'm answering some of these questions that entrepreneurs have about how to improve their user experience. So one of the things I'd love to know from your listeners is what questions do you have about how to improve your user experience? Mm. Because chances are, if, if you have it, somebody else has it too. And yeah. then hopefully I'd be able to address that on my website um, through longer form content. Amazing. Yeah, that's so good. Um, it's kind of free advice um, from a super expert in the field. So Shana, how can uh, how can people connect with you? Well, since I don't want you guys to have to spell my name, you can reach me at hello at phd-insights.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, but not too often as Shana Speaks. And we also have a Facebook page. And uh, spell Shana for the, for the folks in the audience. That would be S-H-E-A-N-A. Amazing. Well, Shana, it's been fascinating uh, learning more about your uh, company, your how you help startups, um, the user experience, which I think is critical um, for so many startups and their success. So um, thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. We Are LA Tech is independently funded by the community. We couldn't make this happen without your support. If you too want to contribute to We Are LA Tech and see us making the podcast, building the mobile apps, creating the events year after year, consider contributing at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash We Are LA Tech. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes.